submarine intercepts included copious detail, the identity of the Japanese sender, the submarine's designator, its mission, dates, and times of departure, its plan of movement, sometimes even grid coordinates. On July 15th, the day before Indianapolis sailed for Tinian, the magicians captured this intercept. From Captain Sub I-58, this sub will move up into the sea area west of the Marianas Islands as follows. 182000 will pass through the eastern entrance to Bungo Suido. According to the date-time group in this intercept, 182000, I-58 would pass through Bungo Suido on July 18th at 2000 Zulu time, or 8 p.m. Bungo Suido is the wide channel between the Japanese home islands of Kyushu and Shikoku, connecting the inland sea with the Pacific. By this point in the war, Japan had restricted her submarine activity almost exclusively to the upper reaches of the northern Pacific, fending off the Allies' advance from Okinawa toward the home islands. However, the July 15th ultra-intercept showed that Hashimoto would drive his boat deep into the Philippine Sea, a sprawling body of water defined within the larger Pacific by green islands sprinkled in the rough shape of an expansive horseshoe. At the bottom of the horseshoe lies the Palau Island Group, seized from Japan in November 1944. The Mariana Islands, several captured during Spruance's campaigns, form the horseshoe's eastern upright. 1,200 miles to the west, the left side of the horseshoe when viewed from above, the Philippine Islands form the sea's opposite boundary, with the island of Mindanao in the south, then north up the chain to Leyte, Samar, and Luzon. The Ryukyu chain, including Iwo Jima and Okinawa, lay northeast of Luzon, capping the horseshoe to the north. The magicians captured portions of I-58's projected route. First, a pair of unrecovered headings that Hashimoto would use on July 19th and 20th, followed by a generally southerly heading thereafter. 192200 in grid position use blank, comma, blank. 200400 in grid position use blank, comma, blank. Thereafter, course will be 160 degrees. The blanks represented the unrecovered headings. This intel was followed by an estimate of I-58's assigned patrol area, based on a fully recovered range and a partially recovered position. I-58 was scheduled to sortie from the Western Inland Sea on 18 July, carrying six chitin to patrol the sea area 500 miles north of Palau? Smedberg, the combat intelligence officer, had been tracking the Taman group since July 13th, when intercepts first revealed the four sub-attack force, all assigned operating areas in the Philippine Sea. On his chart, he had plotted I-53 on the west-southwest line between Okinawa and Luzon, Philippines. Two more Taman boats, I-367 and I-47, 
appeared on the chart farther north. If this newly recovered information about I-58 and the islands of Palau was correct, then the subsposition by late July would be essentially astride the east-west allied shipping lane between Guam in the Marianas on the eastern edge of the Philippine Sea and Leyte in the Philippines to the west, a course known as Route Petty. Smedberg marked it that way on his enemy subchart and immediately put this data in the mill. At Guam, Commander James Carter received this information. Carter was commander of Sink Pack Advance, a forward headquarters that Nimitz had established in order to be closer to the fighting. As he did each day, Carter initialed the intel concerning the Taman group to acknowledge receipt. 2. July 16, 1945 the Pacific Ocean. Indy rolled forward, hurtling over the wave tops and shouldering through the troughs, her hull swelling with slow, deep breaths like the flanks of a galloping horse. Captain Charles McVeigh could taste the salt air on the bridge as his ship cleaved the sea at flank speed, near her maximum of 31 knots, or about 35 miles per hour. Topside watchstanders leaned toward the bow as the ship churned her own stiff breeze, while below, a small army of men tended a steaming battery of boilers and turbines. L.D. Cox was on the bridge to stand his regular watch, but his prime mission was to get the scuttlebutt on a near disaster. Earlier, he'd been sipping coffee in the mess hall, when the deck heeled wildly under his feet. Coffee splashed from his cup as he and every man around him slid, stumbled, or fell to starboard. Rumor had it that Indy had hit an unusually rough wave. Cox didn't believe that for a minute. Sure, they'd run into some rough weather just outside the Golden Gate, but the ship had been in plenty angrier seas than this. Cox slid over to the quartermaster to find out what had happened. It was some new kid, the quartermaster said. At the helm, the officer of the deck had a striker, a man in training. The OOD had directed a course change, and the kid quickly turned the rudder four or five degrees, the quartermaster explained. Nearly laid us down. Cox admitted a low whistle. Four or five degrees? Since transferring to Navigation Division... He had learned that when Indy was hauling ass, you wanted to give her only about two degrees of rudder, or risk putting her on her side. Ships of her class were notoriously top-heavy, and drastic maneuvers might cause her to roll so far that she could not recover. Good thing it was only a close call, Cox thought, especially with General MacArthur's special delivery-scented toilet paper aboard. That was one of the guesses on what was in the crate the Marines were guarding around the clock in the port hangar. Rumors raced around the ship, and some of the men even had a betting pool going. The crate was about the size of an automobile, so some said it wasn't toilet paper for the general, but a car. MacArthur had enough clout to demand something like that, 
and Cox wasn't alone in thinking that the man was such a show-off he probably would. Others wagered the crate was full of liquor for the officers to toast the end of the war. Glenn Morgan had heard all the rumors, too. He decided to mosey up to the port hangar to razz the Marines, whom he considered a generally high-strung bunch. He planted himself in front of the guard detail, dipped his Dixie cup back with his thumb, and let a slow, mysterious smile develop. I know what's in the box, he said. The Marines smirked. Yeah, what, said one. It's a map and the paperwork for the invasion of Japan. The Marine stood fast and eyed Morgan skeptically. Think about it, Morgan pressed. They've got to have all this stuff so they'll know where they're going once they start the invasion. The Marines told Morgan to quit beating his gums, pointing out that he didn't know any more than they did, which was perfectly true. Of all the mysterious crate rumors, Morgan had true because he'd started it himself. Once Indy cleared the worst of the weather, McVeigh made his way to the flag lieutenant's quarters to check on his army guests. They were quartered in one of the larger staterooms on the forecastle deck, just aft of the admiral's cabin, with a double bunk and a desk built into steel walls. Furman and Nolan were there, their curious canisters padlocked and secured to the deck with chains and eye bolts, as Furman had requested. It was then that McVeigh received another sliver of information. Furman revealed that Captain Nolan was not an artillery officer. He was a physician. Sent on the mission to assure McVeigh that the material brought aboard his ship was safe. McVeigh processed this revelation and thought for a moment about what the shipment might contain. Aloud, he asked whether the canisters contained bacteria. When he did not receive an answer, he let the moment pass. My crew and I will do everything possible to ensure safe passage of your cargo, he said. Then McVeigh departed. Later, he called several key officers to the bridge. We're on a special mission, McVeigh told them. I can't tell you what the mission is. I don't know myself. But I've been told that every day we take off the trip is a day off the war. As Dr. Lewis Haynes listened to McVeigh's cryptic brief, he recalled something he'd seen earlier that day. It was a dispatch circulated only among members of Admiral Spruance's staff, of which Haynes was technically a part since he was chief medical officer on the Admiral's flagship. Addressed to all commanders, the dispatch stated that Indianapolis was operating under the authority of the Commander-in-Chief. The new Commander-in-Chief, Haynes realized, Harry S. Truman. Indianapolis was not to be diverted from her mission for any reason whatsoever, the message said. Haynes had signed the dispatch as required and thought, my God. What have we got that's under control of the President of the United States? Half a world away, President Harry S. Truman held in his hand a top-secret telegram from his war secretary, Henry Stimson. Operated on this morning. Diagnosis not yet complete, but results seem satisfactory and already exceed expectations. Translation 
The Trinity test was successful. With a blinding flash and a light not of this world, mankind had entered the nuclear age. Truman was in Potsdam, Germany, for a summit with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Communist Party General Secretary Joseph Stalin. The president had already met with Churchill and taken a tour of the devastation that was Berlin. He had not yet met with Stalin, but would later size him up as a man with an aggressive agenda who was smart as hell. The summit had multiple aims. They included establishing goals for the demilitarization, democratization, and denazification of Germany, defining the borders and governance of Poland, and hammering out a post-war working relationship between the big three superpowers, the Soviets, the United States, and the United Kingdom. In addition, Churchill, Truman, and Stalin would discuss surrender terms for the lone remaining adversary, the nation of Japan. Truman gazed at Stimson's message and considered its implications. Not only had the test met the most optimistic expectations of the Los Alamos scientists, but America had truly discovered and had possession of the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. Truman, a devout Christian, remembered the fiery destruction foretold in Scripture in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. Was this awful weapon the fulfillment of that prophecy? 3. At McVeigh's direction, Casey Moore and a small group of officers met with Furman and Nolan in their cabin. The men discussed a range of potential emergencies that, if they materialized, could endanger the Army cargo. The greatest danger to a ship at sea was fire, the Navy officers explained. That could occur at any time. As a matter of standard procedure, the ship's crew was already well-versed in firefighting. In addition, the new men were under an aggressive training program that McVeigh and his executive officer, Commander Joseph Flynn, had implemented to whip them into shape. Moore and the Indy officers next explained another potential emergency. Indianapolis could be sunk in such a fashion that her crew would have less than half an hour to dispose of the shipment. While newer ships had been built to sustain underwater damage, Indy's senior officers did not believe a cruiser of her class could sustain even a single torpedo strike if it hit in a vulnerable spot. In cruising condition, the second deck, about ten feet above the waterline, was left wide open, with no watertight compartments buttoned up to prevent through-deck flooding. This was necessary for ventilation, and so that the crew could quickly man their general quarters stations. But it also exposed the second deck to flooding. If that happened, the ship would either capsize or go down by the head or bow first. The Bureau of Ships called this an acceptable risk, and McVeigh and Flynn's training program for a new crew concentrated heavily on damage control. Moore and the other officers told Furman and Nolan that it would take one hell of a lucky Japanese sub-commander to sink Indy so quickly as to endanger their cargo. 
First, the sub would have to be lying directly in Indy's path. Then its skipper would need two hits amidships, or at her center, to sink her. Even then, she would likely remain afloat for a number of hours, enabling the crew to get the shipment safely into a motor whaleboat. The whole scenario was so unlikely as to be almost out of the realm of possibility. Still, the Navy officers didn't discount it entirely. Moore told Furman that he would drill a team of sailors on getting the cargo off the ship in a hurry and would even assign alternate crews to assist. He would also set aside ropes, block and tackle, rafts, life jackets, and whaleboats for offloading the cargo in an emergency. There were plenty of extra life jackets. Moore had had a tough time getting a new supply aboard, but then received a double shipment of jackets right before Indy sailed. Later that day, Furman heard a fire alarm ring out. A small conflagration had blazed up in a waste area. A designated firefighting team quickly doused it, but the incident underscored to Furman what Moore had said. Fire would be the most prevalent danger. On July 16th, martial music boomed through the harbor at Kure, and the voices of cheering patriots rolled to Hashimoto's ears in waves. I-58 entered the swept channel and headed toward the Kaiten base at Hirao. Hashimoto presided over a special ceremony for his six suicide pilots. As always, he marveled at their bravery. The next morning, I-58 slipped down to the Bungo Channel, where they conducted deep-sea diving trials during which the Khitan's periscopes were found to be defective. The setback sent Hashimoto back to Hirao for replacements, but his boat sailed again, in company with I-53 on the evening of July 18th. That night, I-58's radar men picked up what appeared to be a B-29 formation. Probably en route to attack the Japanese mainland, Hashimoto thought. He found himself wondering which city was in for it this time. For weeks, the Americans had attacked with carrier task forces and shore-based bombers, softening the beach, no doubt, for the inevitable mainland invasion. The enemy's 3rd Fleet and 20th Air Wing were launching wave after wave against Honshu. Naval aircraft from the Ryukyu Islands, now controlled by the Americans, ranged over the East China Sea and along the coast of Kyushu and southern and central Korea. Carrier task forces were also attacking the remaining Japanese surface fleet in their home ports. In the past week alone, the enemy had sunk nearly a hundred ships and destroyed or damaged locomotives, rail yards, factories, lighthouses, oil plants, and ammunition depots. With the Americans now able to consolidate their forces in the north and west, the assault was vicious, concentrated, and relentless. Japan had not flagged in resistance but in fight after fight, her planes fell from the sky like broken kites with soot tails. Ships not sunk were left burning. The hour was growing desperate, Hashimoto knew, and there was nothing he could do except take the fight to the enemy. As part of the Taman attack group, he would do exactly that, 
proceeding east and then south down into the Philippine Sea. His orders were clear, the mission strictly offensive. Move into the sea west of Guam and the Marianas, find the enemy, and attack. 4. On the second day out of San Francisco, Cletus Lebo almost got into a fistfight. Some fathead from another division was picking on Clarence Hirschberger again. Hirschberger was only 18, an Indiana kid who worked with Lebo and Paul Murphy in fire control. Hirschberger had really wanted to be a Marine, mainly because girls really went crazy for the uniform. But the Marines wouldn't take him because he had flat feet. Hirschberger was a swell fellow, Lebo thought, but a missing tooth had left a wide gap in his smile and there were a couple of tough guys who just wouldn't stop picking on him. Finally, Lebo told them that if they didn't knock it off, he was going to let them have it. Other than that, the ride over to Pearl was proving fast and mostly quiet. Well, other than all the drills the skipper had ordered. The extra training was a good thing for the new men, Lebo thought now, sitting in fire control. As Commander Flynn had observed, the whole lot of them were green, green, green. Lebo had not expected to see the forward areas again, but he was not as surprised as some. While on leave from Mare Island, he'd visited his folks in Abernathy, Texas. When it was almost time to go back to the ship, a disquiet seized him. He found that he dreaded returning to Indianapolis, and he had never felt that way before. He confided this to his mother, Minervia, who reminded him that Jesus would be with him wherever he went. This counsel reassured Lebo at the time, but now his disquiet was back, and he still didn't know precisely what the problem was. Maybe it was those nine indie sailors who died off Okinawa. That had really rattled him. But there had been other things, things he had not told his mother. During the short pre-invasion bombardment of Iwo Jima, Admiral Spruance had parked Indianapolis a few thousand yards offshore, where Lebo and Murphy joined in the shelling. Iwo had been an ugly island before, Lebo thought, barren and dominated by an ashy peak that burped steam like a stinking old drunk. Then it turned horrific. On D-Day, February 19th, Lebo watched the attack through his rangefinder and could actually see the shallows turning red with the blood of American boys. The sight clawed at his heart. Then, during the bombardment of Okinawa in the last week of March, he was again looking through his rangefinder at the shoreline. He swept his gaze left to right along the beach, which stacked itself into black volcanic rock, that rose to form a cliff about two hundred feet high. He was inspecting the cliff when movement caught his eye. Lebo saw a woman. She looked young to him, and Japanese. A pair of Japanese soldiers hemmed her against the cliff's edge, and in her arms she held a baby. Clinging to her leg was another child, maybe three or four years old. As Lebo watched, the soldiers pressed the woman closer and closer to the edge. Finally, with nowhere to go, 
she scooped the older child into her free arm and jumped to her death. Lebo had not had time to feel much then. He thought all things Japanese were evil, especially after Iwo Jima. But enemy soldiers forcing women and children to their deaths was a new level of depravity. The memory stuck with him, made him uneasy, and probably contributed to this dread that was still parked in his gut. He hadn't known that Indy would be going back to the forward area, but now here they were. He wondered if he was also right, as he had told his mother, that something awful was going to happen. Furman and Nolan slept and sat with the bomb. Nolan was also waging a losing battle with seasickness. He had known it would plague him and began swallowing pills to fight it even before he and Furman boarded the plains in Albuquerque. The pills made him sleepy, and he spent a great deal of time in his bunk, suffering nausea so vicious that he feared he was going to die, while also fearing that he wouldn't. There was only one upside. The time Nolan spent secluded in the flag lieutenant's cabin facilitated continual radiation checks on the cargo without drawing attention to what might otherwise have appeared to be oddly frequent visits to his quarters. Furman, meanwhile, set about absorbing the wonder of his first experience on a warship at sea. Indy rumbled along in rhythm with the sea. Up, down, side to side, shuddering and thrumming with the effort. Designed to give and bend, she yielded to the tons of water that coursed around her, rolling forward with a purposeful grace, averaging thirty knots. The speed, Furman learned, was a tactic that would not only shorten the trip, but also keep them safe from enemy subs. Even the fastest of the Japanese boats could only make about nineteen knots. Each day, Furman observed gunnery practice. Since he was impersonating an artillery officer, it seemed the thing to do. One of the ship's observation planes towed behind it a brightly colored sleeve, a kind of long wind sock, and Indy's gun crews blasted away at it. Furman thought the pilots who drew the job of being shot at had a most unenviable assignment. Despite his bent toward secrecy, Furman quickly formed friendships with several Indy officers. He especially enjoyed the Irish types, Father Conway, Moore, Flynn, and the engineering officer, Commander Glenn DeGrave of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Furman considered them all good examples of Hibernian blood, spirited men of strong convictions and good humor. Flynn, who was nicknamed Red for his hair, even looked the part. A 1927 Naval Academy grad, he had already been assigned to take command of another ship and hoped to catch up with her on this voyage. The engineering officer, DeGrave, regaled Furman and Nolan with humor-leavened rants about the indignity he was about to suffer. Just as they were putting to sea, DeGrave received orders. The Navy had decided that at 51 he was too old for further sea duty and he was to be put off Indianapolis at Pearl Harbor. DeGrave was furious about this and kept Furman in stitches with salty grousing 
about his impending fate. Meanwhile, the bomb transport mission was proceeding without incident, if you didn't count the fire and the near capsize. The decoy crate seemed to be working well. The box was stenciled with Army quartermaster marks that were both indecipherable and, in every respect, misleading. Still, rumors and wagering on the contents continued. One sailor told Furman that after much deliberation, he'd hit on what was in the crate a ransom for General Jonathan Wainwright. The Japanese had taken Wainwright prisoner when the Americans surrendered at the Philippine island of Corregidor in the summer of 1942. To ransom the general would take something really special, the sailor allowed, since Wainwright was the highest-ranking American POW of the war. And the sailor had figured out what that special something was. The crate contained none other than the heart-stoppingly beautiful screen siren, Hedy Lamar. Furman laughed, but neither confirmed nor denied the sailor's suspicion. It was as good a rumor as any, which meant it was about as far from the truth as you could get. 5. After three days at flank speed, Diamond Head rose into view its jagged southern rim like teeth sawing into the sky. When the ship passed abeam the old volcano, the one MC came to life, announcing that Indianapolis had just broken the speed record for the 2,091-mile passage from Farallon Light off San Francisco to Diamond Head, the whole voyage in 74.5 hours. All over the ship, the men sent up a cheer, not least because many were looking forward to beer on the beach and bronze-skinned island girls. But after Indy moored in Pearl's green water lagoon, McVeigh allowed almost no one to leave the ship. Dr. Haynes thought perhaps there were medical exceptions, and he tracked down Flynn. I've got a corpsman with a fractured leg, Haynes explained. I need to offload him and transfer him to the hospital. Sorry, Lou but nobody's leaving the ship, Flynn said. Haynes insisted. He's got a fractured ankle and he's in a cast. He really should be in a hospital. But Flynn was equally insistent. Like I said, nobody's leaving the ship. Nobody but the yard workers and men with orders. Haynes did not press further. A rabble-rouser at the academy, Flynn had mellowed into a man who loved a good joke but would also tell you no in a way that left little room for argument. One man with orders to disembark was the engineering officer, DeGrave. By the time Indy tied up at the pier, he was mad as hell all over again. He had beaten over-age orders before, but the ones he had in his pocket now were final. He stomped down the brow, having spit out only minimal goodbyes. His replacement, an ex-merchant marine named Lieutenant Richard Banks Redmayne, had served for five months as DeGrave's assistant. Now, at age 27, he would ascend to the top spot, engineering officer for the flagship of the Fifth Fleet. Indianapolis took on fuel and stores. Six hours after tying up, a line-handling crew cast off again. On the bridge... McVeigh rang for steam. The engine room, now under Redmayne's command, 
gave it to him, and the ship nosed out through the harbor gate. Haynes stood topside watching. On the way in, he'd noticed that the normally busy harbor was entirely deserted, which meant Indy could pull right up for fueling without the usual lengthy wait. Now she was sailing past a strange steel city of American ships, all just sitting outside the anti-submarine nets, doing nothing. Haynes realized then that whatever was on the hangar deck in that well-guarded crate was awfully important. On July 23rd, when Indianapolis was halfway to Tinian, the Pacific Joint Intelligence Center issued a 10-page submarine update classified Top Secret Ultra. Addresses on the message included 11 different Pacific commands, but with a tiny distribution. Only 16 people would see this intelligence. The update was tabular in format and contained revisions to data that had been published on July 16th, the day Indianapolis sailed from Mare Island. The July 16th report had pinpointed the IJN submarine I-372 in Yokosuka, Japan. The July 23rd report updated this information. Task Force 38 aircraft had sunk I-372 in Yokosuka. The new report also revised the positions of submarines in the Taman Group. Analysts charted I-47 and I-53 at Nansei Shoto, between Okinawa and the nearest of the major Philippine islands, Luzon, and plotted I-58 in the central Philippine Sea in the vicinity of the Caroline and Mariana Islands. By day, Flying fish leapt like dancers along Indy's southwesterly track toward the Marianas. At night, her screws spun a luminous green wake that ribboned from the stern like the trailing robe of a queen. Tinian lay about 1,400 miles south of Japan and five nautical miles southwest of Saipan, appearing from the air as green as Ireland, its warm coastal waters percolating with brightly striped fish. McVeigh had decided to make the transit from Pearl to Tinian at 24 knots, and now he was well ahead of schedule. Along with his crew, McVeigh puzzled over the contents of the crate, albeit along a narrower line. He knew that Purnell, the admiral who'd given him the assignment, was deeply involved in some secret project, though he didn't know just what. But considering what Furman had said about the shipment cutting time off the war, McVeigh knew it had to be a weapon. In the end, it didn't matter. His job was to make sure the shipment, whatever it was, arrived quickly and safely at Tinian. Indy's week-long steam would put her in the anchorage there on the morning of July 26th. It would be a homecoming of sorts. In June 1944, Indianapolis arrived off Saipan with spruance on her bridge. The Admiral's sprawling surface force, along with Admiral Mitcher's carrier planes, had just bested the Empire in the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Now, the Japanese meant to defend Saipan at all costs. America paid a high price to capture the island, 
losing 11,000 of 71,000 ground troops. As the Marianas invasion pressed on, Indy's flag plot, Spruance's tactical control space aboard the ship, became a smoke-filled room, the scene of grand debates on strategy and tactics. Admiral Kelly Turner and General Harry Schmidt sent 41,000 troops, mostly Marines, ashore at Tinian to face a defending Japanese garrison of 8,500. After eight days of fighting, only 313 Japanese soldiers survived. Now Spruance's flagship was returning to the island, albeit without his flag. During the transit, McVeigh and Flynn continued their ship-shape project with firefighting and abandoned ship drills for the new men, as well as drills specifically related to the special cargo. McVeigh also issued standing orders for continued gunnery practice. Dr. James Nolan's seasickness had abated some. Since he was posing as a gunnery officer, he decided it would be prudent to at least observe some naval target practice. This, though he disliked guns and was afraid of them. Moving carefully, so as not to trigger another wave of nausea, he joined Furman topside, where he stood with Commander Stan Lipsky, Indy's gunnery officer, and Ensign Donald Blum. As the four men watched Indy's five-inch guns eject fire and smoke, the deep concussion of each salvo thundered in Nolan's chest. At 21, Blum was the junior gunnery officer, one of the men Flynn had labeled green, green, green. Blum reported to Indianapolis at Mare Island after receiving his commission through the Navy's V-12 program, a college curriculum designed to churn out a steady supply of officers to staff the war. He was among the ship's most junior officers, which was perhaps what prompted his habit of highlighting privileges he enjoyed in contrast with the humble circumstances of the enlisted. The gun barrels recoiled with each blast and coughed thick smoke, which the sea breeze ushered aft amid the lingering smell of explosives. Blum turned to Nolan with a question, How big are the guns you shoot in the army? The doctor froze for a moment and cursed his lack of foresight. If he was going to pose as an artillery officer, why hadn't he at least prepared himself a bit of a script? But he recovered quickly with a dash of humor. Nolan made a large circle with his hands and held it up in the air with a smile. About this big. Blum and Lipsky burst out laughing. Nolan and Furman laughed too and breathed inward sighs of relief. But when they weren't looking... Blum glanced at Lipsky and raised his eyebrows. En route to Tinian, some sailors felt the skipper's extra gunnery practice was about the last thing Indianapolis needed. Seaman's second-class Don McCall had spent the last three years burning across the Pacific with Admiral Spruance, doing the real thing. Tall and narrow-faced, McCall had red hair that rolled back from his forehead in a thick wave that wasn't strictly regulation. He grew up in Mansfield, a speck of a town in central Illinois. His father, a strong, honest man who raised his kids to be likewise, 
fell suddenly ill after exposure to lime mortar. Three days later, he was dead. McCall was only ten. After that, his mother took a job running a sewing machine for a New Deal program, the Works Progress Administration. But there was never enough money. When McCall reported to Indianapolis, he was 18 years old. It was the first time he ever remembered having enough to eat. And they even paid him $18 a month. McCall loved the Navy and saw his first action at Tarawa. When Indy arrived there in November 1943, the island had looked to him like an emerald floating in a sapphire sea. When she left, Tarawa was nothing but stumps and smoke. In battle, Spruance always insisted on a ringside seat and often ordered his flagship positioned close to the beach rather than commanding from a distance. McCall served as an air-sea lookout on the starboard side of the bridge, where he often worked directly with the Admiral on sighting enemy shore batteries for the gun crews, using binoculars and Indy's Polaris, an instrument for observing a target's bearing from the ship. McCall saw a lot through his binoculars that he later wished he hadn't. Like civilians forced to leap in droves from the cliffs at Saipan in the summer of 1944. That kind of thing had caused a lot of the fellows to despise all Japanese. McCall didn't. Peering through his glasses at savage hand-to-hand combat, he would sometimes see an enemy soldier fall and think, that man had a family. 6. On the morning of July 24th, a few hundred miles north of Indy's track in the upper reaches of the Philippine Sea, a radar man aboard the destroyer escort USS Underhill picked up a bogey. It was a Japanese Dinah, a bomber, shadowing Underhill and her convoy. Commanded by Lieutenant Commander Robert Newcomb, Underhill, DE-682, was escorting six troop ships bearing battle-weary soldiers of the Army's 96th Division after their final assault on Okinawa. Throughout the war, American shipbuilders had delivered more than 550 destroyer escorts like Underhill in an effort to counter Axis submarine threats in both the Atlantic and Pacific theaters. The ships were small, fast, and equipped with 5-inch and 3-inch guns, as well as 40mm and 20mm anti-aircraft defenses. Destroyer escorts sailed in company with slower, less defensible ships, such as transports, as well as cruisers, which were not equipped with underwater sound detection or other anti-submarine gear. Escorts sometimes fought off IJN subs and other times sank them. Occasionally, though, a Japanese sub-commander scored a direct hit on a ship under an escort's care. In those cases, the escort transformed into an ambulance on the spot and picked up surviving American crew. The Navy's policy on escort ships had evolved as combat victories compressed the hot areas of Pacific operations into the north and west. Now Nansei Shoto, the area astride the shipping lane between Okinawa and Luzon, Philippines, 
was one of the hottest. Underhill was a replacement in this convoy, which also included a number of patrol craft and subchasers. The original escort tapped for the mission was down with mechanical problems. Soon, the Dinah had flown close enough that Underhill's lookout spotted it and sent up a cry. But the plane, it turned out, was no threat. Instead, she was a hound leading the hunters to their prey. Within an hour, a pair of submarines snaked into the area. One laid a dummy mine, bait for Underhill. When the destroyer stood in to sink the mine with gunfire, the subs attacked, releasing at least two chitin. Underhill spotted one of the suicide subs on the surface. Quickly, Newcomb ordered a course change and rang for flank speed. All hands stand by to ram, he said. Underhill crashed the chitin on its port side, but seconds later, two explosions ripped the ship apart. Underhill's entire bow forward of the stack was blown off. It sailed up and splashed down to starboard, where it floated like a giant ragged buoy, sticking straight up. One hundred twelve men died in the blast, including Newcomb. Other ships in the convoy quickly scooped up survivors. In ultra-traffic, the sinking of Underhill was quickly credited to the Taman Group, being tracked by Captain William Smedberg and the Combat Intelligence Office in D.C. Viewed on Smedberg's chart, the Japanese attack occurred only a few miles from the last estimated positions of I-47 and I-53. It also occurred less than a week after I-372 was sunk at Yokosuka, where ultra-intercepts had last placed her. It seemed that the magicians were on a hell of a roll. The Underhill intel filtered out to select theater intelligence officers and area commanders. At Guam, Captain Edwin Layton passed the information to Commodore James Carter, commander of Sink Pack Advance, who discussed it personally with his surface operations officer, Captain Oliver Naquin. Vice Admiral George Murray, who was the commander of the Mariana Islands, also received it along with select senior officers in the Pacific. Properly sanitized, this information should have trickled down to commanders in the fleet. As Indianapolis steamed for Tinian, McVeigh's officers and men kept themselves busy. The communications officer, Lieutenant Commander Ken Stout, and his radio men spent time testing four newly installed medium and high-frequency radio transmitters called TCKs. The radio men transmitted ship to shore and back again, and the TCKs all worked perfectly. Earl Henry had also been working hard. Since pulling out of San Francisco Bay, he'd been a one-man dental assembly line. The pale green dental chair in his examination room rolled and dipped as Indy clipped through heaving seas. But it was bolted to the deck, and Henry had become an expert at pulling his drill from a sailor's mouth in time to keep from drilling anything he shouldn't. The Pacific humidity had turned his exam room sticky and close, but he spent full days in there trying to fill the time until he could finally get a look 
at his little son. Jane had mailed the photographs as promised. After Tinian, Indianapolis would stop in at Guam, and Henry was expecting to receive the pictures then. He chattered about them non-stop to all the officers, including the skipper. McVeigh kept himself occupied, inspecting personnel and berthing, accompanied by a new yeoman. Richard Perebeck, a first-class petty officer who joined the ship at Mare Island in June. By then, Perebeck had twenty months of shore duty under his belt, including time spent on college campuses recruiting waves, women accepted for volunteer emergency service. With his Lawrence of Arabia eyes, he was good at it. Plus, he joked, somebody had to do it. Finally, though, the Navy made him pick a sea billet. A friend in the 12th Naval District told Parabek he could choose between a carrier, a destroyer, or a heavy cruiser, all under repair at Mare Island. Parabek had lost two friends in the consuming blaze aboard USS Franklin, so he didn't want a carrier. And he'd heard that destroyers had suffered heavy losses around the Philippines. He chose the cruiser Indianapolis as the safest bet. 7. July 26, 1945, Tinian Island The sea breeze brought the welcome smell of tropical land, signaling that Indianapolis was approaching the 40-square-mile coral lozenge, referred to by Manhattan Project insiders simply as destination. The OOD set the sea and anchor detail, McVeigh rang engineering to back down the engines, and the helmsman nosed Indy's clipper bow into a basin on the island's leeward edge called Tinian Town Bay. A year earlier, Admiral Spruance had stood on Indy's bridge, overseeing the Allied capture of the island. Now the Seabees, the Navy's construction battalion, had hewn from the rough coral ground a half-dozen military-grade runways, and trucks and jeeps sped through a grid of city streets named for those in the New York City borough of Manhattan. Indy's line handlers pitched a hawser rope down to the pier, where a man looped it over a bollard. Signalmen raised the American flag on the fantail, and at the bow hoisted the Navy Jack, the white stars of the 48 states set in a field of blue. As line handlers worked to secure Indy in her mooring, McVeigh's new yeoman, Richard Parabek, stood at the rail, last in a string of curious sailors. As he watched, a miniature armada of motor whaleboats and other small vessels streamed toward the ship, all of them containing a lot of brass hats. Parabek saw, too, that the pier beyond rippled with military police. From among the small boats advancing toward the ship, a landing craft emerged. Its broad, flat, topside cargo space was designed to carry tanks, but now it was empty, except for a lopsided number of officers. You men follow me. Parabek looked up to identify the speaker. It was Commander Flynn. His order peeled the last three fellows off the port rail with Parabek at the end of the line. 
Just my luck, he thought. Wrong place, wrong time. He trailed Flynn to the flag lieutenant's quarters, where he entered and saw three men. Two were the skipper's army guests, the major and the captain. He also saw two metal canisters joined by a long pipe that was threaded through eye bolts on the canister tops. Parabek looked at the oddball contraption and thought back to some reading he'd done. That looks like it has to do with radiation, he murmured. The comment met a thick wall of silence. Flynn ordered Parabek and the other men to carry the canisters out to the forecastle for offloading. At the same moment Indianapolis was offloading her secret cargo, world-changing events were unfolding elsewhere on the globe. In Germany, Truman, Churchill, and Stalin had issued the Potsdam Declaration, dictating terms for Japan's surrender. The document, which vowed prompt and utter destruction if the Empire did not immediately accept the terms, was a high point for Churchill amid a crushing low. At home in England, he'd just been voted out of office. Voters had lofted the Labour Party to power, and Churchill's deputy, Clement Attlee, was installed as Prime Minister. Churchill's defeat would be catastrophically misread by Japan. Leaders there saw it as a weakening in the Allies' united front, a softened beachhead upon which dissent might gain ground. Foreign Affairs Minister Shigenori Togo banked heavily on such an outcome as he considered the Potsdam Declaration and prepared the Empire's response. At Tinian, Ensign John Woolston was standing on the forecastle when Parabek and the others walked by with a pipe on their shoulders, like comic book headhunters with a pair of severed heads dangling from a pole. As Indy's mysterious voyage unfolded, Woolston's attention had been focused on the large crate in the port hangar, his mind constructing, then discarding possibilities. But the moment he saw the canisters, he knew what the cargo was, as clearly as if the army officers had copied him on a top-secret memo. He'd read all the stories in time. An atomic weapon would explain the urgency, the secrecy, and the orders to save the cargo at all costs. It would also explain the empty harbor back at Pearl and Tinian's brass-filled harbor now. All this flashed through Woolston's mind just as Furman and Nolan walked toward him, carrying their luggage. Woolston was sure that he was among a very few, if any, who had solved the mystery. Suddenly, the urge seized him to tap Furman on the shoulder and say, sotto voce, Hey, sir. How's your uranium doing? Or something. Something that would let the army officer know he hadn't fooled everyone. But Wollstone knew that as junior as he was, that would be unforgivably brash. Besides, Captain McVeigh and Commander Flynn were standing nearby. In the end, Wollstone decided he just didn't have the guts. Meanwhile, an Indy crane operator, swung out a boom trailing a hundred-yard line with a buoy tied to it. Seaman Lyle Umenhofer, who'd escaped the mess hall when the kamikaze hit, 
worked with some men from deck division to hook the mysterious crate to the line. A buddy of Umenhofer's was working the crane. Look at all that brass, he'd said to Umenhofer a few minutes earlier, when both men had a bird's-eye view of the throng of gray and khaki uniforms. A startling number had the gold braid of high rank scrolling across the visors of their hats. Umenhofer's friend said he'd never seen so many scrambled eggs. Umenhofer had. On July 17, 1944, after Fifth Fleet forces took Saipan, a whole galaxy of two, three, and four stars clambered up a Jacob's Ladder and assembled aboard Indianapolis to talk strategy with Spruance. The visitors included Fleet Admiral Ernest King, a five-star, Admiral Chester Nimitz, and a constellation of other flag and general officers sufficient to have Indy's entire crew tiptoeing around the ship for the rest of the day. Then, in January 1945, at Ulithi, Spruance resumed control of the fleet from Admiral William Bull Halsey in preparation for the invasion of Iwo Jima. From the decks of Indianapolis, Spruance would command more than a quarter million Marines, soldiers, sailors, and airmen, including 100,000 ground troops. At Ulithi, so many stars graced Indy's decks to consult with their fleet commander that the introverted Spruance wrote to his wife, I have been very busy, mostly seeing people, which I do not enjoy in large doses. Now, as brass from every service branch watched from below, Umenhofer's buddy carefully lowered the crate and set it on the deck of a second landing craft. While most of the crew focused on this operation, Wollston had been watching as a crane on the other landing craft lifted the canisters down to its deck. Furman and Nolan had then climbed down a rope ladder into the craft. Wollston noticed how absurd the canisters appeared. They were, in fact, the only items on a deck 30 feet wide and 100 feet long. This, too, matched his new theory. As he watched, the boat quickly put her stern to Indy and growled away. 8. July 27, 1945 Opera Harbor, Guam. On the morning of July 27th, USS Indianapolis dropped anchor in Opera Harbor, Guam. A bosun's mate blew his high-pitched whistle and piped McVeigh ashore. A car then collected the captain for the quick ride up the coast to Sinkpack Advance Headquarters. Motoring northeast along the island rim, McVeigh could see on his left the coral-shadowed, turquoise waters of Opera, a deep-water port that was in many ways the perfect South Pacific moorage. Green strips of land wrapped like velvety arms around the blue basin, protecting it from the open sea. The channel entrance was narrow, some would say too narrow, for many ships had grounded trying to enter, but the slim access made it easy to protect the harbor from seaborne invaders. At Tinian, McVeigh had received orders. Date, 26 July, 1945. From 
SyncPAC Advance Headquarters. 2. Indianapolis. Upon completion unloading Tinian, report to Port Director for routing to Guam, where disembark COM 5th Fleet Personnel X. Completion report to PD Guam for onward routing to Leyte, where on arrival report CTF 95 by dispatch for duty X CTG 95.7 directed arrange 10 days training for Indianapolis in Leyte area. In plain language, the orders meant this. After Indy dropped the secret cargo at Tinian, she was to travel to Guam, then proceed west across the Philippine Sea to Leyte, Philippines. There, Rear Admiral Lind McCormick would arrange the long-overdue refresher training for McVeigh's crew. Copies of the Sync Pack message, date-time group 260152, streamed out to seven other addresses, including a covey of admirals, Spruance and Nimitz, as well as Vice Admiral Murray, commander of the Marianas, who was headquartered at Guam. Also copied were Task Force 95 Commander Vice Admiral Jesse Oldendorf and his subordinate McCormick, commander of Task Group 95.7. The message should have been classified secret, as were all warship routing messages, but was broadcast as restricted by mistake, lowering its importance. All addresses received the message except for McCormick, who was to arrange Indianapolis's training. McCormick's radio men made a decryption error, scrambling the numbers in 95.7 and concluding that the message was not for their boss. McVeigh had not been in the forward areas since April. To get the lay of the land, he planned to call on a classmate of his, Commodore James Carter, commander of Sink Pack Advance. Nimitz's new Pacific Fleet headquarters. To be nearer the fighting, the Admiral had chosen to stake his new claim on a bottle green hill overlooking Agana, which Spruance and the Marines had captured a year earlier in a symbolic full circle victory. Three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, with America still stunned and reeling, 5,000 Japanese soldiers stormed Guam's crystalline beaches sweeping away a garrison of 400 U.S. soldiers. The island became the first American-held territory to fall to Japan. Then, retribution. After conquering Saipan in July 1944, Indianapolis took station off Guam and battered the Japanese in a thunderous symphony of shore bombardment. 60,000 troops, Marines, Army, and even Coast Guard, Slogged ashore at Arote, Agana, and Agat. Tales of Japanese atrocities had hardened many hearts among invading U.S. ground forces. Their attitude was to take no prisoners, to give no quarter. After 22 days of savage combat, America again controlled the island, and Indy steamed into opera to bring Spruance ashore becoming the first American ship to enter the harbor since the beginning of the war. Commodore Carter served as Nimitz's assistant chief of staff and operations officer, but McVeigh knew him as Jimmy, 
When McVeigh appeared in his office, the two had a casual conversation. McVeigh explained that he had been out of the fight since Okinawa and asked Carter to catch him up on the operational situation. Things are very quiet, Carter said. He did not mention, either directly or in sanitized fashion, the ultra-intelligence on the deployment of four IJN submarines on offensive missions to the Philippine Sea. Neither did he mention that one and possibly two of those subs sank Underhill, or that Admiral King's magicians had pinned I-58 to their maps 500 miles north of what they suspected was Palau near the Allied shipping lanes that crisscrossed the Philippine Sea between the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Philippines. Instead, Carter said, the Japs are on their last legs and there's nothing to worry about. McVeigh explained his orders to take Indianapolis from Guam to Leyte. First of all, you will not be routed by this office, Carter said. That's handled by the routing officer, Naval Operating Base Guam. He added that Nimitz was anxious for McVeigh and his crew to complete refresher training in Leyte so that Indianapolis would be ready to embark Admiral Spruance and his staff and resume duty as the 5th Fleet flagship. At the rate I'm going, McVeigh said, my refresher training will probably be conducted in Tokyo Bay. He was only half joking. After visiting Carter, McVeigh went to have lunch with Spruance and his chief of staff, Rear Admiral Arthur C. Davis. Over the meal, Spruance told McVeigh he wouldn't need him for several weeks. Was there anything McVeigh wanted to do in the meantime? McVeigh said he'd like to get his refresher training in without delay. Go ahead, Spruance said. When you finish that, I might send you to Manila. The rest of the staff might be there, and they can use you until I'm ready to embark. Is there anything you'd rather do? No, sir, McVeigh said. The admiral was in no rush, he told the captain, as he was busy working on the invasion plans for Kyushu, the Japanese island that had been nearest when Spruance sat aboard Indy and watched Franklin burn. At about 4 p.m., McVeigh went to the routing office and huddled with Lieutenant R.C. Northover and Ensign William Renault over a plotting board in a Quonset hut. Joseph J. Waldron, another lieutenant, listened in. Waldron was the convoy and routing officer for Naval Operating Base Guam. The plotting board depicted Route Petty, an 1,100-mile straight shot from Guam to Leti across the Philippine Sea. The route missed a due west heading by just 8 degrees. McVeigh told the junior officers that he'd like to leave the next day. July 28th. What speed would you like to make? Northover asked. The question puzzled McVeigh, who felt the routing officers were in a better position to make that call than he was. In addition to fuel and mission considerations, a warship's speed was also designed to reduce the threat of attack by enemy subs. With sufficient speed, a cruiser like Indy could outrun any Japanese boat. I haven't been out here for over two months, McVeigh said. I don't know what speed you are allowed to make. Is the 16-knot speed limitation still in effect? The fleet had imposed this restriction in order to conserve fuel. I don't know, the lieutenant said. 
McVeigh hoped to arrive early morning at Hamanan Island at the entrance to Leyte Gulf, he explained. He wanted to meet planes towing target sleeves and, he said, shoot our way in. The captain watched as Northover checked the distance, made a quick calculation, and announced his findings. If McVeigh wanted to reach Leyte in 48 hours, he would have to make 24 or 25 knots. If you take three days, 15.7 knots will be your SOA, the lieutenant said. SOA means speed of advance, or the speed over the ocean bottom made good toward a ship's destination, taking into account wind, currents, and weather. Having just made high-speed runs from Mare Island to Pearl, and then from Pearl to Tinian, McVeigh said he'd prefer to run at the lower speed to reduce wear on his engines. Northover said he would prepare the routing instructions accordingly and give them to McVeigh's navigator, Commander Janney. McVeigh remarked he would prefer to travel in company with another ship. He had never felt that a ship without underwater sound detection equipment should travel alone, but sometimes escorts weren't available and a skipper had to accept the risk. At Okinawa, heavy damage to destroyers and destroyer escorts had required Pacific Fleet commanders to rethink the deployment of escorts so that damaged ships could rotate into the yards for repairs. So by the time Indianapolis was ready to sail, escorts were being used mainly for merchants, for troop ships, as with the Underhill escort, and for vessels traveling in the most exposed areas. Route Petty was not considered one of these. The routing officer told McVeigh he would not be afforded an escort. McVeigh had traveled solo many times, so he didn't give it another thought. He thanked Northover and Renault and left the Quonset hut to return to Indianapolis. Still, after McVeigh was gone, Waldron called the offices of Captain Oliver Naquin, service operations officer for Guam, to see whether an escort was available. Waldron was told that no escort was necessary. Given Indianapolis's size and number of personnel, Waldron was a little surprised, and he said as much to Northover, adding, At least we went through the motions. <laughs>